This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us, but above all for your word, because it is in your word that you have revealed to us who you are. And it is only through your word that we come to know you. It is only through your word that we come to know your will. It is only through your word that we come to know your plans and your purposes for the human race, for human history, and for us as individuals. Your word, we learn of your plan of salvation and your plan for the spiritual life, the Christian life, and how we can grow to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, as we study your word today, as we continue to think about how we live our lives according to your will, how we know your will, how we can make wise decisions, we pray that as we submit ourselves to your word that you will make these things clear to us and God the Holy Spirit will make clear to us the meaning, significance, and application of these principles in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our third uh, part of a uh, short little sub-series, you might say, on Colossians. Colossians 3.15 uses a turn of the phrase that has often been misunderstood, misapplied, uh, in the area of understanding decision-making and the will of God. That verse reads, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Often that first phrase is taken out of context to mean some way in which we determine how to uh, how to do God's will in our life and what it is, that when we have difficult choices or challenging opportunities and we have options in life, that what we do is we wait for the peace of God to somehow settle upon our soul, and that's how we know God's will. That's, uh, that's not what this verse is saying, as I pointed out before, that when we look at this particular verse, uh, in context, we compare it to other passages that the peace of God here is not talking about an internal subjective psychological state, but it is talking about the state of harmony that was accomplished first at, as a result of our justification, our harmony with God, and secondly, our harmony with other believers. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to pursue peace with all men. That is the rule. So what we have here is a statement by Paul that is parallel to the statement in Hebrews uh, 12 that we are to let peace with one another 
be a guide, be a rule in all of our uh, behaviors, in all of our uh, relationships, in all of our actions, as far as can be determined by us, we are to pursue peace with others. Now, I've covered that several times in the past few weeks, but this always raises the question for people, well, how do we know the will of God? And so I've gone through this in the past uh, couple of lessons talking about uh, this whole phrase, this whole concept of the will of God, that often the way this is taught is that for each and every decision we make in life, there is a precise will of God. And But I've pointed out in terms of uh, evaluation of that teaching, that if we carry that to its logical and inherent conclusion, then that would mean that that every decision, whether it is a minor decision or a major decision, it ultimately there would be some will of God issue. And do we stop and pray uh, when we uh, do every the mundane things of life? Uh, do we stop and pray about which shoe to put on first or what color uh, dress or blouse or suit or tie to wear each day? Do we pray about each book that we read or whether what article we read in the newspaper? Uh, is there a will of God for each and all of these things? And we would all agree that, no, that would be carrying it too far. So there's a, a, an inherent sense there that, that God does not have a specific will on each and every issue. Now, he may, but to say that he does on each and every issue is very different from saying that there are times when God does have a specific will, a specific geographical will, a specific operational will uh, in our lives. Much of the decision-making that we encounter in life is really uh, based not on do we make the, quote, right decision, because uh, once we look at many decisions we make, we realize that neither morality or immorality, right or wrong, uh, truth or error, uh, none of those apl- uh, apply. Uh, it, it, they are morally, spiritually neutral decisions. And therefore, what comes to play is what has been called by some a wisdom principle, a wisdom decision. Now, don't confuse wisdom with common sense because, first of all, common sense is exceedingly uncommon, number one. Number two, common sense is often going to be uh, shaped by various cultural values and cultural ideas, but it should be shaped by a biblical worldview. It must be shaped by divine viewpoint in the soul, which only comes as a result of spiritual growth, so that a spiritual infant may not be uh, aware of all of the uh, doctrine, all of the wisdom principles and scripture that may apply to a decision, and they may not make a wise decision. They may make a good decision. They may make a better decision, but Uh, unless they are seeking counsel from mature believers who may give them some wise insight. It may not be the wisest decision. And we see this when we look at various uh, books in the Old Testament that were considered part of what uh, is classified as wisdom literature, Job, some of the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. Some even classify Daniel in some degree as part of wisdom literature. And we can see that in many cases in Daniel. Uh, I was reflecting upon uh, the decisions that Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to uh, make in the course of their life. 
Uh, we think of the first chapters they're brought over to uh, Babylon, and they are going to be indoctrinated in all of the ideas and all of the values and, and all of the thinking of the uh, Babylonians and all of their paganism, and they are also being forced to eat a certain diet. Now, of all the things that they have to address, the diet issue was one where there was a specific absolute from Scripture. And so they make a decision based on the application of the word that they are not going to eat the uh, non-kosher food, the tray food that's going to be placed in front of them. But then they go beyond that, and they, they're faced with a confrontational, complex situation. And this is where you see wisdom applied, because uh, Daniel handles the situation in a particularly effective manner as he goes to the chief of the eunuchs and makes a deal with him that that if he would allow them to eat according to their uh, prescribed diet uh, for a period of time and uh, as opposed to the others who ate whatever the Babylonians gave them, then at the end of the, this test period, it would demonstrate that the, uh, the, the men who were eating the uh, religiously prescribed diet, uh, the kosher food would be healthier and would be more alert, wiser, smarter, and uh, which, in fact, is how God uh, prospered them during that particular time. So that's a, an application of wisdom. You don't see anything going on in there where they um, are asking God whether or not this is the right course of action to take to go to the eunuch. Uh, what, uh, they, they commit the situation to God and that God would work in and through it, but they're not asking for God's direction on each and every step in the process. They're taking the body of uh, biblical knowledge and truth that they have and they're applying it uh, to the particular situation. There's not necessarily a right way uh, or a wrong way to handle it. There may be some wrong ways that you would not handle that situation, but there may have been two or three different ways that would all express a certain amount of, of wisdom. There was not a specific uh, one way and only one way to handle that situation. Um, I'm not talking about whether or not they should uh, should eat the um, the, the food that had been prohibited by the Mosaic law, that's set. But how they handled the situation, that was something else. So I pointed out that we have a couple of different categories of God's will that we've talked about in terms of vocabulary, that there is what theologians refer to as the sovereign will of God, and this has to do with uh, the secret will of God. It's what God has determined will take place in history, and we don't know that. That's in the secret counsel of God. It's also called the decretive will of God from the word decreed. We don't know it until it has happened. Then we have the moral or the revealed will of God, which tells us what God desires us to do. Sometimes it's called the desiderative will of God, but that's a big word for most people, so it's, it expresses God's uh, what God says is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. But that doesn't necessarily address each and every situation and each and every circumstance. So last time I finished with this fourth point, that we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. We can't know the specifics of his sovereign will because that is not uh, not revealed. 
Now, in the New Testament, we have over 565 imperative mood verbs. This is just the imperatives from Acts through the uh, through Jude. I didn't go into the Gospels because that may relate to a different dispensation, same with Revelation. So just within those, those are just imperative mood verbs. Now, if you add various other ways in which a mandate or a prohibition can be expressed, then it goes far beyond that. That describes the boundaries. Now, many people ask the question, well, what's God's will for me in this thing? Well, first it starts with, obeying all of these commands and prohibitions. And and as we're obeying them, then we're walking by the Spirit and we're walking in the light and we're walking by means of truth as as the Scripture describes it. And when we're doing that, then when we're trusting God, then we have the uh, confidence that God will be guiding and directing us. So, but these passages give us that express specific will. We talked about Romans 2, 17 and 18. Also, we have passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul expresses this a little differently in Ephesians 4. He says, for everything, give thanks. In everything and for everything, we're to give thanks. And so that is, if you're not don't have a mental attitude of gratitude, gratefulness, thankfulness for whatever it is that's going on in your life, then you're not in God's will. So that forms a very specific statement. First uh, Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Will of God has to do with things that are set apart for the service of God. Second uh, uh, Corinthians 6.14, talking about intimate relationships here. This isn't talking about uh, just uh, casual friends. It's not talking about uh, uh, business partnerships or associations other than those that would involve such a deep connection that uh, one's morals, one's values, one's spiritual beliefs would be impacted uh, by that relationship. And so we're told do not be bound together with unbelievers for what fel- what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. So it is clearly God's will that we avoid certain kinds of relationships, certain levels of intimacy with unbelievers because of the negative impact that can have. Later on in, in uh, or rather in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says that... Um, uh, bad friends corrupt good morals. And so it's very clear that wrong associations, wrong friendships can have a uh, negative impact on our Christian life. That is not God's will. So we concluded, therefore, God's sovereign will includes his moral will. But his moral will, that is the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, are not always what he decrees. That's the difference between his permissive will and what he allows in creatures and uh, as well as uh, the prohibitions that uh, part of his revealed will are not part of uh, the prohibitions that are uh, in his revealed will are often outside of his decreed will. I pointed out several examples of that as well. Under point six now, usually we become concerned about the will of God in the midst of some momentous decision in life. I find that 
as you people get older, they are less concerned about it. You've made the big decisions in life already, where you went to college, who you married, uh, in many cases, uh, rearing your children. But this has not been, uh, th- these decisions have, uh, the foundational decisions have already been made. Now, as we go through life, other decisions come up that are momentous. There are uh, job possibilities, career possibilities, promotions, things of this nature where we have to make uh, fairly significant decisions again. And so we do come back to this topic. But usually in those formative years, from the time you're about, uh, I would say, 14 or 15, maybe even younger for some decisions, to the time that you're in your early 30s, you make decisions that will set the course of your life. It's one of the ironies in God's plan that people who are less, the people who are uh, uh, least capable of making a wise decision have to make the most important decisions of their life uh, during that time. And yet they set, often set the course of their life. Um, as I've said many times, and you've heard me say this, when I was very small from the earliest I can remember, my mother used to always tell me that... that um, I could not have any friends that were not believers. And that set a framework so that as that time began to approach and she started saying things like this long before it was going to be a reality, uh, she would just drop little comments like, I would never date uh, someone who was an unbeliever. And whenever I would come home from school in elementary school and I would mention some new friend, her first question was always, well, are they a believer? Now, that set the stage so that when I got to that point when I was about 15 or 16 and went out on my first date, the first question I knew would come was, well, is she a believer? So I knew I had to know the answer to that, and so that set a pattern, and it set a pattern that uh, that dominated the, the rest of my life. So that's an example of parental uh, parental training. Uh, often I find that that has not been the case, and I was just astounded when I went to, uh, was pastoring my first church, how many children of the people in the congregation were married to unbelievers because they had, their parents had never drilled this into them, their pastor had never drilled this into them, and they had just gone off to college, university, whatever, and they had married somebody, and it had a damaging impact on their the rest of their life because of the consequences from making one bad decision. And we often make those bad decisions and not being fully conscious of the fact that they can have such a, a negative, destructive impact down through the years. So we have to think about those decisions. And as I say here, that even though God may not have a specific on-the-dot expression of uh, date this person not that person, there are still some principles that apply uh, when it comes to making those kinds of decisions in almost every decision because we're living in a fallen world. Almost every decision in some sense, though it may be just general, uh, has some uh, application for wisdom, uh, wisdom principles in making those decisions. Point number seven If we're to do all things to the glory of God, now pay attention to that word, all things. That's a universal concept which pretty much uh, 
covers everything that we do in life. Every aspect of our life there is touched by Bible doctrine. There is not any area of your life or your thinking, my life or my thinking, that is not addressed by the Word of God. Now, it may not be a specific statement. It may simply be a broad general wisdom principle. A great way to learn these is to go through, for example, the book of Proverbs and to classify uh, different Proverbs. If uh, you're parents of young children, this is a great little exercise to do with children is to go through, read through Proverbs, classify the Proverbs in terms of those that have to do with money, those that have to do with friends, those that have to do with uh, priorities, uh, all of these, you can, you can come up with probably 25, 30, 40, 50 categories uh, that you can uh, use to, to approach the Proverbs. And then you list out all of the verses that are related to each of those categories, and that gives you uh, principles of, of wisdom for decision-making. Because we face many decisions that uh, some of which involve a moral or a uh, spiritual issue. Sometimes they don't have a moral or spiritual issue, and uh, <clears throat> sometimes they don't have a specific will of God in relation to either his geographical will or his operational will. So we have these broader categories. When you, we think about the passages often cited to prove the case that God has a specific geographical will, usually they're uh, God's direct direction to a prophet in the Old Testament or apostle in the New Testament telling them to go to a specific location. But what about the rest of their life? I often point this out with Jonah. Up until the time Jonah was told by God to take the gospel to Assyria, was there a geographical will for his life? Not anything more than he was to function as a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. But there was no prohibition uh, about going anywhere. He could have gone uh, and traveled to uh, Phoenicia. He could have traveled down into the southern kingdom of Judah. There, there was no, no restriction there. There's only one time when he, God told him that he needed to be at a specific location. The rest of the time, uh, that is when wisdom would be applied. <clears throat> so point number eight, since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will, before the fact, questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. Only to revealed information. We can't say, well, for example, the church may come to a point where we say, well, we're, we need to buy a piece of land. We need to uh, look at a permanent uh, location. So should we buy this piece of real estate or that piece of real estate? Well, there, God's not going to come along and give us some sort of liver quiver, uh, some sort of inner buzz to let us know whether it's a right decision or a wrong decision. We have to get all the facts that we can. We have to commit the situation to prayer. We have to pray that God would give us uh, guidance and direction and uh, perhaps intervene to keep us from making a foolish decision or an unwise decision. And on the basis of all the information that we gather, then we make the best decision uh, that we can. I mean, I've had various circumstances in my life where I have made those decisions and things didn't work out very well. 
And you know what usually happens then? People say, well, you made a decision that wasn't God's will. Well, gee, Paul made decisions to uh, do various things in his ministry, and he ended up being persecuted, ended up being arrested, ended up being taken to Rome in chains, ended up being uh, uh, released, arrested again, uh, went through all kinds of suffering. So the fact that negative consequences are the result of your decision doesn't mean you made the wrong decision. It just Many times we make the best decision, the wisest decision based on all the facts, and then God uses that to teach us some things because that's where God wanted us to teach us those things through negative circumstances. So you can't second-guess the decision. That's one of the worst things people can do. It's really a side of arrogance and self-absorption is to stop and start second-guessing all of your decisions, saying, you know, I really shouldn't have made that decision. Well, if it was an immoral decision or a, a decision that was motivated from the sin nature, if it was a decision where... Uh, wherein you were disobedient to Scripture, then no, you shouldn't have made that decision. But if the, if you were walking with the Lord, walking in fellowship, if you were committing the circumstance and situation to God in prayer, if you were walking in the light on the basis of truth, following all of the guidelines of Scripture, and you make a decision, then we have promises that tell us that God is the one who guides and directs us in making that decision. We just don't know what God's long-term consequence is and what he intends. So this is where we have promises like Proverbs 3, 5, and and 6, that we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. That doesn't mean that we don't evaluate it in terms of our understanding, but at some point we have to stop and just trust God that in light of all the facts— in light of everything that we understand from Scripture and from the circumstances, this is the best decision. We commit that to him. And then the second verse comes into play, Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will keep you perhaps from making a stupid or foolish or harmful decision. And there have been many times in my life when I have thought that I ought to make a certain decision and I've committed it to the Lord and trusted him to keep me from making a foolish, stupid uh, decision, and he has done that. And afterwards, I thank God that he has. There have been some times when he let me learn the consequences the other way, but there, there, you can't second-guess God. He's not, As I said last week, he's not playing some sort of shell game where we have to guess his will. He's revealed that to us in his word. We have to walk consistent uh, with that. So that raises the question that is often raised, is there one and only one will for every decision, or is the issue in many decisions a more general concept of biblical wisdom for living? And I would say that the wisdom model is the more biblically correct model. Now, some people have taken that to mean that, well, you don't, you don't pray, somehow you don't commit it to God's uh, care, and that's not true at all. It's not just uh, a, this isn't a common sense type of position. It is a biblical wisdom position. Now, wisdom uh, in the scripture is not the wisdom of the Greeks or the Europeans, which is more of a philosophical, intellectual uh, ability, wisdom in the Hebrew mind was a skill. 
a skill for producing something that was of value, that was beautiful, that was uh, had, had great uh, great value to it. And so, wisdom in living is. Uh, a, a skill. It's developed as we go through life, which means that you're, we, as we learn to make wise decisions, we're going to make some wrong decisions, some foolish decisions, some decisions that weren't as wise as they could have, would have, should have been, but it's a learning process. And so uh, as we grow in our knowledge of Scripture, then God gives us the insight from Scripture. We have we do have examples in Scripture, such as uh, examples of God's specific uh, individual will. I won't go into all of the details, but the principle is that when God does something in private, every now and then you say, "People, say, I just feel like this is what God wants me to do," or God just seems to have confirmed this to me that this is my decision. Well, first of all, I don't think God operates like that today because that would entail some sort of special revelation, and special revelation has ceased. So that probably doesn't apply. But even in the Scripture, when you have examples of God doing something privately with someone, he always confirms it through external objective uh, events and so that nobody comes along and just says, well, God... Put it on my heart to do X, Y, and Z. That is, uh, and claiming special revelation. It is uh, different from that. One example is in First Samuel chapter ten, when Saul is anointed in private by the prophet Samuel, and then what happens? You have various confirming things that happen. Saul was uh, ran into Samuel because he was out looking for a lost donkey. And the donkey finds its way home. Saul continues on his way after Samuel anointed him. And along the way, he falls in amongst some prophets. And the scripture says that uh, they were, uh, the Spirit, Holy Spirit came over him and they were uh, praising, uh, praising God. He prophesied together. I think prophecy in that sense is used several times in scripture to indicate uh, uh, praise to God. Uh, later on, uh, in the next couple of chapters, he has victory over the enemies of Israel. This is an, another attestation of the fact that God has anointed and appointed him to be the king of Israel. So there's a whole series of things that happen that confirm uh, the will of God that was accomplished in, in private. This happens again and again and again. Uh, you have other passages, for example, uh, Jonah. Uh, one, one through three, and one, two, God tells uh, Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, this always raises an interesting question to me, because the Bible doesn't say how this happened. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. Now, if you're sitting out there and you think, Well, this is something that happened between his ears, how do you know that? See, that's how a lot of people approach it. They automatically think of this as this is something that happens internally and subjectively within Jonah's head. How do you know that? Where we have other passages that are clear what the circumstances are, where the Lord says it's external, it's audible, it's outside the head. Uh, It's not an internal subjective thing. 
So why is it that we come to the text and we assume that's what it's saying? Because you've been, you, you've been oriented that way somehow, but that's not evident in the text. And there are many passages that we'll see even in the New Testament where God uh, or the Holy Spirit says to the apostles, to Peter, to Paul, to somebody to do something, but it doesn't say how he said it. So let's not assume that it's an internal subjective thing. Uh, I'm not going to assume it's an external thing. I don't know. It doesn't say. Don't make that conclusion because the Scripture doesn't see that as important, so we're not told how that happened. What we can look at is passages where it is described a certain way, and we can say that's true there, and that sets a pattern. So Jonah was specifically told to go to Nineveh. But as I've been pointing out, this only applied in this particular situation. You have examples in the New Testament. Uh, Peter has seen a vision, where, uh, which is part of a means of special revelation, where in that vision, in the dream, he sees uh, a tablecloth lowered from heaven, and on that tablecloth you have all manner of animals that are determined to be unclean by the Mosaic law, and he's not supposed to touch them or eat them. And so as a uh, Orthodox Torah-observing Jew, Peter says, no, 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 Lord, I'm not going to eat that. God says, well, I've determined to be clean. is clean. It's not clean because suddenly they discovered that you have to cook pork to a temperature of 160 degrees so you don't get certain kind of bacteria. It never had anything to do with health, and the health issues were not what made it clean, according to Acts 10. It was designed to teach certain spiritual principles that because the law was no longer in effect, were no longer uh, uh, significant or valid. So we're told in Acts 10:17, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. See, in the vision, God said there are some men coming, so that's private, what's confirmed, external uh, reality. The men come, and they look for Simon and uh, go through the episode where they uh, invite him to come to uh, Caesarea, uh, Maritima, uh, to have a uh, to, to meet with, with uh, Cornelius. We have other examples, such as Acts 13.1, there were at Antioch in the church that there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. How did he say that? Well, the indication is that they all heard it, so it's not something that's just internal, something happening in their mind. This is, this is a time of transition, as we've seen in Acts, there were there was still special revelation going on, and so there is uh, audible, I believe, audible direction from God the Holy Spirit at this particular time. So what we see here is that the Scriptures have specific revelation from God when there are specific things that God wants uh, people to do. But many times there are not specifics, and there's just the general application of God's word. So point number 10, knowing God's will is based on the knowledge of doctrine, the knowledge of God's word, what you have in your soul, and God the Holy Spirit teaches it, and it is through that doctrine 
that he guides and leads us. Galatians 5.18 says that we are to follow a path, walk by means of the Spirit, and he's the one who leads us. It's like following a path. He does that that through his word. An illustration of this that I'll close with this morning comes from the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes in Persia. Cupbearer is sort of a position today we would call the chief of staff. It was one of the most powerful positions uh, under the king of Persia. And as he is observing and learning about what has happened to uh, some of his uh, fellow Jews who have already returned to Jerusalem, realizing that the final walls have not been uh, have not uh, been constructed, and that uh, little is being done. They're facing a lot of opposition from the Samaritans and others in the land. Uh, then Nehemiah begins to pray about the circumstance, and then he goes to. Uh, then while he is serving Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes says, well, what's bothering you? I can see something's bothering you on your face. So there's never any direction from God to Nehemiah as to what he should do. His direction is coming from his understanding of Scripture. And then twice in Nehemiah, you run across this interesting phrase where Nehemiah says, God put it on his heart to do something. And I think that 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 has an element to it of special revelation that God gave him twice. It only states it twice, Nehemiah 2.2 2 and 7.14. In those two passages, God gives him specific direction. But everything else that happens is really up to Nehemiah in, the ter- in terms of exercising leadership on the basis of what he has learned uh, from the Word. And so that gives us a framework for understanding this wisdom principle, which I'll conclude with, uh, when we come back next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for your word. Your word is the guidepost. It is the path. It's the direction. It's the instruction that we have for life. Yet there are many issues in life that are not uh, directly, specifically addressed in, in your word. But your word gives us the framework. It gives us the orientation. It gives us the uh, guidelines whereby we can look at other issues in life, make wise decisions. Now, Father, we pray that as we face the issues in our lives, that we can take the principles of Scripture and that under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, His guidance as we trust in You and commit our lives to You, that You will guide and direct us so that we can make wise decisions in all areas of our life. But above all, Father, we are concerned about those who might be here, those who might be listening to this message who are not saved. They've never uh, come to understand all that has been provided for them through Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for their sin. And only by trusting in him can we have eternal life. Only by trusting in him can we enter into your family. Only by trusting in him can we uh, really come to know and understand biblical truth. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you. He died as your substitute to pay the penalty for your sin. It's paid for in full. Your decision is whether or not you will accept that, whether or not you will trust in him and him alone. Father, we pray that you would 
challenge us with the things we study today, help us to think biblically, correctly about the decisions and details of our lives, that our lives may glorify you in everything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.